This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Happy holidays, traders, and welcome to the Limit Up podcast presented by Top Step Trader. I'm Jack Pelzer, and I'm recording live from my wife's closet because uh, twas the day after Christmas, and none of us are in the office until the new year. But in the meantime, we figured we'd uh, brighten up your holiday season a bit with some of the best of our Limit Up interviews from 2019. You'll be hearing from some of our favorite guests today and uh, some of our best bits. But also, in order to make some better bits in the next year, we'd love you to take our listener survey, which you can find at topsuptrader.com slash listener survey. Uh, it's just 10 multiple questions, I believe, and we're going to use that to really uh, retool the podcast and make it as good as it possibly can be for the next year. So once again, that's topsuptrader.com slash listener survey. And to sweeten the deal, if you successfully fill out the survey, we'll be drawing 10 random winners who will each get a $100 Amazon gift card. That could definitely be useful after all that holiday spending, however you spend your holidays. But in the meantime, just sit back, relax, and enjoy today's best of the Limit Up podcast episode. I'll see you at the end with a little outro. You started a robo-advisor. Can you talk about robo-advisors and what do you think about them? Where do you see them going? I have some thoughts about robo-advisors, but I'd be curious because you're very experienced in this space, what you see with that marketplace. Yeah. Um, after my RIA, so we, we sold that to, to a much larger RIA and I sold my part in the RIA to actually pursue a different path, which was to go into fintech and to build what you just said, a robo-advisor. So that term, I'm not even sure when it came about. It might have actually been slightly after we started. So we started in 2014. I don't know if this term really stuck until about 2015 and on, but uh, we were following in the footsteps of the betterments, the wealth fronts, and then the ones that pivoted to different business models, the personal capital, SigFig, uh, LearnVest, and so forth. We were in that vein. And then I tried to put a little bit of a twist. So there were nuanced differences with all the robos and ours again was sticking to what I knew, which was small business retirement and IRA and tax advantage accounts is how I refer to them. I try not to use the lingos themselves, but I always refer use the term tax advantaged. And again, we started ours not because I thought that robo advice itself, uh, which is a little bit of a misnomer is you probably, maybe that's where your thoughts are in that they're not automatically making dynamic changes. They're basically a set, you know, value menu number one through six, and you have to pick one through six. And typically you're required to ask some questions to put them into one of those six. And then the customer would have to proactively override. They don't want moderate menu, but instead they're okay with aggressive or conservative and so forth. So for us, the twist again, wasn't about robo advice itself being the end all be all. It was just, trying to provide a more efficient way. I saw a gap then after working with retirement plans for small businesses and going all the way up to big fortune 1000 companies at this point in my, through my RA and my later days at Merrill, that there really wasn't a product that worked for businesses that had between two to 15 employees. And those aren't SMEs. Uh, SMEs are defined by Gartner as up to a thousand employees. I mean, we're talking micro, micro businesses, but there were many, many of them, millions of them. And it was very difficult to, Every week, I was probably getting an email, text, LinkedIn message from some friend of a friend asking who I use. We have four people now. Now, where do I go? And there really wasn't a solution. So I was kind of driven to using the robo, um, which was an attractive space that was 
had an anchor and had some awareness amongst the venture and investor community. So you can get capital to start the business. Mm -hmm. But really for me, it was actually a chassis to create a micro business retirement plan. That's what we used it for. And the way I view it, I guess I didn't answer the question. The way I view it is that even now, several years in, they're not really robots and dynamically providing advice either. They're still very set it and forget it. Maybe just a mobile app delivered version of a strategic target date fund is maybe how I define them today. Yeah. You see a lot of stuff like on, let's say, Twitter where they sell the lows and buy the highs and stuff. I don't know. But my thing on robo-advisors is, you know, is investing in them is different than executing on them. So when, when we've looked at them, it seems like the customer acquisition cost is higher than the long-term value of the customer for several of them. How did you get around that? Was was it a part of your business where it was a, a leader to get into the other part of your management business? Or I'm just curious if you looked at customer acquisition costs versus long-term value, like the average size of the account and the fees that you got off it compared to how, how much it costs to get that account. Well, this is another, uh, I would say, new sort of trend that's happening in financial services, which is more of a subscription-based pricing as well. So Schwab kind of probably got the most right. notoriety for that recently, several months ago for their robo. But even when we did Honest Dollar back in 2014, to stabilize the way we were able to crunch those spreadsheet numbers, we actually had subscription pricing then. So we can't, we were seven, we were four to seven dollars, depending on how you came on board with us, whether it was through a channel or direct. So we had the subscription model regardless of the account size. So it was easier for us to model in the early days. It probably would have been penalizing to us in the later days if the accounts were larger. But we, to be fair, we didn't have a chance to cycle through. And it was for that very reason. We kind of worked out the math that the customer acquisition costs for us weren't going to justify what we were getting in the early days. And for us, we needed to raise a lot more capital to start to figure out a way to turn that product into a platform that might allow folks to go into different things. So if you notice today in the robo-advisors, they still have that problem today, but what they're finding is other revenue sources, whether those are ones that are directly charged to an end consumer or ones that uh, might, may come by way of affiliate. And this is no different than financial services. It's Financial services itself has, I'll use the asset management industry as an example. There's really one usual cost that's very defined to the customer uh, in the form of an expense ratio that they can pay. Now, whether they can clearly work out that math easily and see how it's getting debited against their the market value of their account. That's another thing. But even then, there might be five, six other revenue streams accruing to the broker-dealer, the traders, the money manager, the financial advisor, and so forth that the customer is not directly uh, paying. And I think that robos are going to try to figure out a way to do that because the same issue is happening in these neobank-type businesses that are getting, I would argue, much more funding than robo-advisors ever did. So these right kind of new banks like Chime and the irony is that they're not actually banks. They have even smaller customer accounts generating less current money, but I think they're doing a better job of communicating that at some point down the line, they will monetize with other revenue sources, other products and so forth. And that's where I think the robos were more penalized that way by not clearly communicating what is revenue stream two, three, four, eight, ten. And which ones get directly charged to Jeff and Henry versus which ones do you get by virtue of being that channel versus being and being the platform? And they weren't good at communicating that. What about working at Top Step Trader? What kinds of things 
do you do to sort of, and this is not about the app yeah. or trading necessarily. Mm-hmm. It's more about the company. Mm-hmm. So culture. talk about your culture and sort of how you deal with people and how, what people can expect if they work here and all that stuff. One of our biggest, uh, well, one of our values is empower people, yield great results. So that's okay. basically like let them know the challenge, discuss the challenge, let them figure out how to get there. I mean, a lot of people don't like to be micromanaged. Right. Uh, so that's definitely uh, not a part of our culture. Uh-huh. Uh, also, we care about the well-being of our team. Uh, these are the values that we have. And, and uh, we always believe that innovation should never sleep. And the, right. in the, again, in the financial world, it wasn't didn't pride itself on being innovative. Now it's right. becoming innovative now. And there's more right. things popping up about you know, transferring money to different ways of trade yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. funding opportunities like we're mm-hmm. talking about. So we're always going to be focused on that. And it allows people to uh, expand and, and be a part of, hey, if I, I heard this from a trader, I can take that feedback, make it a part of uh, our product and build it into our product. Right. That empowers them to so, you know, be so their own little being. What's interesting like that you learn about an MBA school is sometimes companies are centralized, like Mrs. Fields Cookies is a good example, because or McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they're decentralized, like Ritz-Carlton, where they empower the maid to replace the shoes that got ruined for no apparent reason and no questions asked. It sounds like you have a more decentralized culture Decentralized here, for sure. Where people like just do stuff. Yeah. And it's it's working out really well. Now, the country boy, I mean, when I first started, was a little command and control. Yeah. So that wasn't, that didn't sit well with me. And also the trader side of it, like, yeah. I can do it. So nothing left the kitchen without me looking at right, it. Right, right. Uh, but then, you know, four years into the company and we really started catching legs. I changed my tune. I went through like a leadership school. Yeah, uh, worked on emotional intelligence. Got uh-huh. out of got out of good people, good talented people's way. Right, and let them uh, uh, work together. And I'm I'm a big fan uh, of you know smartest people in the room to wrap right. myself around the smartest. I'm not the ra- smartest person in yeah, the room, but I, I can be the smartest either. person. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can be that <laughs> if I wrap myself around the people <laughs> that are smartest in the room. So that was something really special, and just continue to build out an incredible team that all believes in what we're doing. So. How do you guys celebrate success and how do you handle failure inside the company? Celebrating success. Oh, it's at the Cubs game last week. Oh, nice. <laughs> but I hope they won. They, they did win. <laughs> I don't even think we all knew they were they were winning because we all ended up just being back in the concourse section because we're in the bleachers. Oh, uh, fun. Yeah, so we put the whole uh, company out in the bleachers and we're uh-huh. all having a good time. But uh, uh, you know what? We enjoy all that. We have outings. We have a, uh, an off-site outing coming mm-hmm. up that we're all going to. Um, the departments, uh, cross-department, Cross departmental yeah. hangouts. Like yeah. they'll, they'll hang out, like the marketing team will hang out with the tech team oh, and they'll good. go out for drinks or, yeah. or play murder mystery stuff. Yeah. Or learn that doesn't some... happen in a lot of companies. The no, front of the house doesn't know what the back of the house is doing and the back of the house doesn't know what we're the front very of the transparent. House is doing. Everybody knows yeah. what we're doing, how we're doing it. Um, yeah. We're very transparent about a lot of things. And that helps people really be comfortable because, again, one of our values is caring about the well being. I don't want, you know, I want people to be. There's enough uncertainty in the world. Right. Like when you go to work every single day, you want to be fairly certain of what's right. going on. So that's really helpful. But we've our culture's won um, you know a lot of awards from yeah. the Crane's best place to work for right. three three years in a row, right. one best and brightest four years in a row. Right. Um. You know these like culture awards really are exciting. To right. Get. And how do you guys handle failure? Uh, how do we handle failure? Um, well, we learn from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a, a learning loop that we're learning. We're trying to, I won't say we're trying to fail more, but we're trying to do more things that, that we're, um, we're batting pretty well. So yeah. that means maybe we're not trying as many things. Yeah. So, uh, we're trying to get more kind of pushing our comfort zone, so to right. speak. 
Um, so that is uh, something, but we fail, fail pretty quickly if we Do fail. You? And yeah. then we use those learnings to either sunset the project and, and, and create something from the next initiative or, uh, just, uh, use that for future learnings. Interesting. Some companies have an attitude of hiring and promoting from external sources, bringing in somebody that's figured it out over here, plugging them into a spot in their company so they can figure it out inside their company. And some companies develop their talent to grow inside the company and move, you know, sort of up the route. That's ladder. one thing we spend a lot of our time and attention on. We have a yeah. professional development uh, where, where, and we have a career coach that comes uh -huh. in. So if their career may, if Top Step's a step to yeah. their next career, fine. Right. But we want to, we, we're going to try to keep you in-house. Right. Um, but we've had a lot of people. I mean, our CEO. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer for that, no. by the way. It's, yeah. It all depends on the company culture. We have so. a great career progression within our yeah. company. I mean, our CEO is a perfect example. She started off with me in the early days and she's uh, as a support rep. Now right. she's, you know, COO of the company. Right. And, and we have another uh, support rep uh, that's, you know, a business analyst now right. moved into a totally different department because right. that was his passion. Uh, we have an in multiple interns that are now running marketing campaigns uh -huh. and all that on the marketing team uh -huh. uh, and, and went from intern to like uh, a couple uh, uh, titles. And then now they're. Uh, you know, running teams on on the on the marketing side of things. So this is all really cool to see. Yeah, and we're always going to focus on is that talent here first, right? And if it is, let's hone it. Let's 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 give it a, a place to spread its wings, um, if they want it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, our professional development, which they can use that for anything. If you ever have trouble public speaking, then go to Second City and take a class there. <laughs> you know, like that's a good. So we'll to pay do for it. it. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we do that. And then we give people their space, a lot of work from homes, and uh, uh -huh. we have a thing called Top Step Travel where we give away luxury travel vacations. Oh, wow. Yeah, we do that. We've given away nine this year so far oh, or cool. ten. I mean, these are the Ritz-Carlton and Aspen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are cool. uh, somebody's taking their mom to Italy um, oh, that we're nice. paying for. Uh, somebody got engaged out in Malibu that we we. Uh, oh, really? We My daughter got engaged out in, where was she? Carmel. But, oh, yeah. yeah. It was a good spot. Of, yeah. California coast. Beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Not like the Minnesota coast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right or you the know. or the uh, cornfields of Nebraska. The cornfields of Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. How about it? Can you kind of articulate what dual momentum is in plain English so people can understand it? Well, there are two types of momentum, Jeff. The most common one that most people are familiar with is relative strength. Uh, it's sometimes called cross-sectional momentum, where you're comparing the strength of one asset to others. And you go with whichever one has been stronger over your given look-back period. But there's also what's called absolute or time series momentum, which is uh, basically trend following, where you're comparing performance uh, of an asset versus its own past performance. So if an asset has been going up over, say, the past year, then it has positive absolute momentum. And research has shown that it should continue to advance. Interesting. Now, dual momentum combines the two together, which uh, no one had done before I came along and, and wrote, wrote a paper and a book about it. So dual momentum, then you're talking about sort of like, if I distill it into a, a sort of simple concept, it's like Bayesian conditional probability. Well, Bayesian, you, you have, you have a prior and, and, you know, uh, you modify what your statistics show by some other factor, usually your judgment. All of this is rules-based. There's no, there's no judgment involved. There's no uh, other kinds of information you're incorporating. It's all, all momentum. And when you get right down to it, all momentum is based on trend. 
you know, whether you're talking about relative momentum or absolute momentum, it all has to do with autocorrelation and continuation, persistence, and performance. Okay, so this is more multivariate calculus then that comes up with a number to distinguish which way the trend is going? The trend is uh, it's pretty simple. As, as I explained, for absolute momentum, the way we use it is with the 12-month look back. So if something has been going up over the past year, we say it has positive absolute momentum, and it should continue going until that changes. Uh, relative momentum, you're just looking, comparing asset performance, uh, one asset to another. So typically the way that we use it is uh, taking U.S. stocks versus non-U.S. stocks in terms of relative momentum. You go with whichever one has been stronger over the past uh, year or whatever look-back period you're looking at. And then you'll uh, make that investment only if the trend has been positive. In other words, if the S&P 500 has been uh, up over the past year, then it has positive absolute momentum. And you'll invest in whichever of those two assets, U.S. and non-U.S. stocks, has been uh, stronger. If the trend has been down, then you go to the safety of uh, short to intermediate term bonds for as long as the trend is down. Or go short, no. Um, how, how do you discover... So, like, you know, if I look at my own portfolio... Um, I have this one ETF that's an international stock thing, and it's just sucking wind right now. Um, how can I discover using this sort of analysis when I'm hitting a bottom? Do I need to wait for confirmation of an upswing before I buy? I mean, so this doesn't help you pick like the absolute bottom. No, and if you can pick tops and bottoms, then uh, you're off on an island somewhere. You don't talk to anybody because you have all the money in the world. So no, trend following never gets in or in at the top or the bottom, but if it's done correctly, uh, you know it captures most of the middle ground, and that's all you need to do very well. Right. Why don't more people use it? Do you think? Well, there's a number of reasons. Uh, I think behavioral uh, factors play a large part in it. You know, everyone wants to buy bargains. Um, that's why value investing is popular because, you know, we can go to the store and buy something cheap. Uh, markets don't especially work that way. They're not giving away anything. <laughs> uh, but when you see that the price is advanced, then, you know, there's a, what's called a disposition effect. You tend to want to get out rather than to get in. So there's an aversion to get in after something has started to move. You want to wait for a pullback, and those pullbacks might not come. Like, I missed it. Yeah, that's right. So if you were going to trade 4X today right. and come in, how would you do it? You know what? I still do it the same way. Yeah. I, I trade a lot of 4X. It's funny. I, with the advent of electronic trading, we've got this right. great leveler of the playing field. Now, right. it's taken away the edge you and I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. But- I think both you and I realized it was an interesting mix of people and yeah. guys who are relatively fast on their feet and could do good math. Yeah. Had a, you know what? We're successful. Right. And we realized, I think both of us early on that we weren't rocket scientists, but we were, <laughs> we were relatively, you know, I went to three colleges in four years. Right. I didn't need anybody to tell right. me we, I wasn't we were a rocket scientist. Slightly above average guys <laughs> in the right place at the right time. So, and that was great. Right. But like everything else, Right. It doesn't last forever. Right. So we moved off, and I, I think you remember my partner, Dave Silverman, yeah, and I yeah. moved off the floor and started to do cash futures arbitrage right. between currencies and treasuries, right. which had a great run too. But 
once things hit the screen, or as we called it, the box. Yeah, the box. Uh, the box. Uh, you could see quickly that the amount of people that were able to access the markets now without, right. I mean, I could still remember fighting my way out of the Euro pit, yeah. picking up a phone, calling NYMEX to trade crude, right. and then waiting three hours to get a fill back. Right, right, right. You know, now we, you take your mouse, you glide over 4,000 products, equities, ETFs, right. options, and futures, and you can trade any of them with right. the click of a mouse. Great leveler, but what it's done is open up futures to mm -hmm. the entire world. Right. And- you know, I still trade a lot. Uh, my ability to trade will change once yeah. we get our DCM license. Sure, sure. But uh, yeah, I'd you're, love gonna that. Have a, you're gonna have a day job. So, like, if I was gonna trade forex, though, like what back when we did it, it was like you walked in the pit, your hands were shaking, you had a mentor, maybe you, you had a gut feel or whatever. Do you, would you scale into trades now? differently than you would in the pit if you were just on the screen and scale out or is it like one shot like you know your belly trade or and then what sort of cues do you look at to try to pick up what's going on in the forex market because you you've traded forex i never traded forex i just for the listeners i traded forex like two times in my life and lost money both times it was so fast i didn't know what the hell was going on yeah I, I that was, was like a, my two lumber trades yeah. right <laughs> Now, you, you had, back in the day, the lumber pit was five guys. Yeah, right. And even if you there went was, by and looked at them, yeah, you they were, were, were going to stab you in the heart yeah, with a yeah, pencil. Yeah, you had an outrage. So, yeah. right. <laughs> they didn't want anybody in that swimming pool yeah, but them and no. four guys in an order. Oh, pool. yeah. Who's the guy that written, ran that pit yeah. like a... Yeah. yeah, like a like a boot like camp, like a Politburo, yes. poly <laughs> even better. Yeah, I, I think a good analogy. But yeah, that was like my lumber trades. But yeah. in currencies, for me... When I was on the floor, it was all about the edge you got being on the bid and offer and right. being able to take right. being able to take down a lot of size. Right, right. If you were able and willing to take two, three, four hundred contracts right. at a time, you were the guy the order will fulfill and look right. for because right. he didn't have to do the math and split it right. up ten different right. ways. If he knew he had something to do and you were four bid at five, he knew you'd take all right. four hundred. With the level of the playing field and that edge gone of seeing that bid and offer. I do scale in now. Mm -hmm. I use strictly futures. I'm not a cash FX guy. So do you watch the cash FX for I, clues? I do, but I, you know, the futures, futures have gone from less than 2% of the cash FX business yeah. to 60% of the FX business. Wow. So futures have now gone from, you know, the dog wagging its tail to right. the tail wagging its dog. Right. So it is more than enough information. We actually watch cash prices because the futures were so small. Uh -huh. um, and for those of you who haven't traded Forex, whether you're trading Euro US or dollar yen, it's just when you flip them around on the currency futures, they're all quoted the same way. So right. it's dollars on the right hand side of the quoting convention. Right. They're always the reciprocal of one another. Right. So uh, following one, you're following the other in essence. Right. So uh, what's nice now is I'm trading smaller than I used to. I think we all are. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. with the ability to scale in and out of positions, I'm not looking to turn positions for a tick or two. What I do like is in futures, the true transparency of the marketplace. Mm -hmm. That central limit order book with first in, first out priority yeah. means if you're in that market first, if Goldman Sachs is behind you with a thousand, right? You're one lot, two lot, five lot, ten lot. So, it's filled below. So that. it's CME and the euro dollars. They had the allocation algorithm. Right. Do, they don't have that in the currencies. They don't have that in the currencies. So it's FIFO. It's straight FIFO.
Nobody's perfect. So why do you think companies penalize people that make mistakes? I think because companies are afraid. So I think that it comes from our education system and also what we learn when we start on our first jobs that were taught through a right or wrong mindset. So, for example, when in the education system, we don't teach, they don't teach people to learn. They teach people to score on a test. So basically, it's about finding where are the right answers and make sure that you get the right score and boom, you're done. So when you start working, once again, it's not about developing your curiosity or creativity or ability to learn. It's about making sure that this is the way we do things here and learn the rules and you're going to be successful. So one of the things that Top Step Trader does and, and that, you know, I was a trader before, you know, in my prior life. And there can be a lot of fear around making a mistake. And, and when you make a mistake, you know, it, the tangible evidence that you made a mistake is you lost money. How do you get over that fear? That's a great question. I think that, uh, I mean, one of the questions I, I always ask to myself and I also coach people to ask themselves is, what's the worst thing that can happen? And, uh, and in the end, many times fears are based on a lot of scenarios that never happen to materialize. And because we're always uh, uh, ruminating that, oh, this might go wrong, this might go wrong, blah, 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 then we don't make any decisions. To your point, yes. Many times you can lose money or you can lose an opportunity, but in the end, if we look back in our lives and career, we always recover, right? So we recover from mistakes. So some people make a mistake and then they get stuck and then they are fearful and they want to make sure that they avoid that mistake in the future. But smart people learn how to correct their behavior and the way they make decisions based on the mistakes. So mistakes are lessons. So if you avoid the lesson, you don't grow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, one of the things, you know, it's funny when you're a trainer on the floor, you, you create these catastrophic scenarios around mistakes. And like you say, they don't happen, but still, you know, if you keep losing money, you're not going to, you're going to wind up selling pencils on the street, right? I mean, that's the catastrophic fear. Are there games or things you can do to your mind to like blot that out or change the narrative so that you don't have that catastrophic fear? Yeah, I think there there are two big things, which is the first is understand that 85% of things, you know, to kind of, are out of our control. So when we focus our narrative to a point in what's out of our control, where our head is going to start spinning <laughs> around without <laughs> stop. Right. So my advice is always focus on the other 15%. What are the things that you can control that are in their, your decision, no? your emotions, what you do, how you react to events, how do you adapt to the things that are out of your control, and that gives you much more tools to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. And... And what do you do to yourself? Like in your book, you talk about, you know, changing culture and changing things. What can people do inside themselves to help effectuate change or insulate themselves from uh, fear of making a mistake? Yeah, that's perfect. 
I think that the most important thing that we need to be is kind to ourselves. I think that we are very harsh as human beings because of the pressure that we have to succeed and be successful. Mm -hmm. And many times we don't accept, as you said before, that we're humans. And the moment you release yourself from that internal pressure, basically it's easier to make decisions. No? So you understand that life is a trial and error. The most important thing is don't make the same error over and over. <laughs> no, that's and in the end, it's all about the mindset that we have. No? So for example, if you have a perfectionist mindset, you always try to make things better and better, but then in the end, you never launch. No? And some other people say, okay, you know, this is the best version I was able to create so far. I'm going to put it in front of people. I'm going to launch this version of a product, see what happens. And then I use feedback to continue to improve it. Versus perfectionists. The, the, the funny thing is there's a lot of people that they believe that they're cool because they are perfectionists. You know? So there's always a, a tricky question when you're interviewing for a job and people tell you, okay, ask you, tell me a weakness that you have. And people say, oh, my weakness is I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> you know, because we laugh like, oh, I'm so, no, my worst side is to, but in the end, perfectionist, some perfectionism hurts and harms how we behave because nothing is ever good enough. And in the end, we're feeling our fear of failure. Listeners, thank you for making it to the ghost of Christmas past of the Limit Up podcast. I think that's the third and final ghost of that Christmas Carol series. Uh, hope you enjoyed the best of. We'll be back with a new interview next week. Once again, I'd like to remind you all to please check out our listener survey at topsuptrader.com slash listener survey. Get in the running for one of those gift cards, and uh, we'll be drawing those probably right at the beginning of next year. So in the meantime, we hope you all had a wonderful holiday season. Travel safely, namaste, and trade well. This episode produced by Dante32. Futures in Forex trading contains substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.